thank you to APTA Michigan Silver Partner, Newstep, for their support for this episode. This is Waves, a podcast of APTA Michigan. I'm Andy Wicks. Today we conclude our interview with Dr. Devra Sheldon, a physical therapist in Chicago. The topics covered range from how amazing interpreters can be as part of a medical team, being in the moment with our patients, how the social communication model of pain can inform our practice, and uh, dinosaurs with gait abnormalities. Come along as Dr. Sheldon takes us on a journey. I had a little light bulb go off Mm -hmm. from what you said, how we are drilled into being told we're the movement experts. And I think a lot of us believe that. I mean, obviously I am, so (laughs) I don't know about you. (laughs) So we strive to be like Devra. (laughs) But we've talked about this in previous episodes, and a lot of people talk about it, how PTs have such a high amount of patient contact relative to other healthcare professionals. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. A lot of the patients that I see, I see for 60 minutes at a time. And I'm realizing now what I was never taught in school is how to interact with a patient for 60 minutes. Like it's a skill that I have now. I've been doing this a while. Mm -hmm. But not only interacting with a patient for 60 minutes and being able to have a conversation with a patient. I mean, that's that could be a long time, Mm -hmm. especially for some patients. Mm -hmm. Some patients require a lot more (laughs) mental horsepower Mm -hmm. than others. Some people aren't talking. But also, yeah, some it's easy and some it's not. We've all had the sessions where we put on our psychologist hat because that's what the patient needs that time. And we happen to be the person who they're going to spend an hour with. And, you know, we, we end up filling that role or we end up, you know, we, we, we wear so many hats, but we're never trained. So going to our hashtag, not on the test thing, mm-hmm. we were talking oh, about yeah. that how do we train? How do, how do we teach students that? Because that's a, that's a, a problem I mean, it's such a bigger problem though. We can, we can solve a lot in this podcast, ever, but I don't know if we can solve this one tonight. But the problem of students having empathy or just having like that that emotional maturity, emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence, intelligence, yeah, to be able to just relate. But how do you teach that? How do you teach a student to teach a clinician to be like, hey, you're going to sit and talk to these people, some of them who maybe have some severe cognitive impairments, emotional disturbances, their lived experiences that they're pulling behind them, and you're going to have to deal with a whole different variety of people in your day. How are you going to do that? And how are you going to give the last person on your schedule as much mental energy as the first person on your schedule, especially when some of these patients you clearly like and some of you like well it's a struggle they still deserve the same level of attention and care and and how do we do that and that is something that we have not figured out yet that is not on the test that is not on the test i agree fully one of the (sighs) things that i do that i think helps me and when i taught when i mentor clinicians whether they are my coworkers or clinicians who reach out to me for case support a lot of them want to kind of give me their perception of what they think is going on and okay. what I'll tell them is, you know, they're like, well, so I don't think the patient, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, no, no. I want you to tell me what their words are. What does the patient say? Right. And, and yeah. what I'm looking for is kind of a deeper observation of something we're missing. Right. At the point that someone's talking to me about, something not working so great with their patient, it means that we're missing something, right? There's something in that interaction that hasn't connected. Um, and I don't mean as just like, a, oh, I have a good relationship with my patient. I mean, like we're literally missing something in their mm-hmm. narrative. And mm-hmm. so we go back to the narrative and I'll be like, you know, what do you hear them say all the time? Like, what is something that they repeat regularly? And what's what happens often in that particular question is oh they're always saying whatever and I'm like well that sounds like maybe maybe really relevant if they keep bringing it up yeah right so like sometimes it's just being able to self-reflect like 
you know, even just mirroring for the patient, you know, I know we've only had a couple of sessions together, but this is like the fourth or fifth time that you've said X, Y, or Z. It makes me wonder, you know, it makes me want to know more about it. Can you tell me, tell me more about this? Why, why does this keep coming up for you? And not, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm obviously focused on function and movement and, you know, what, what precipitated a flare up. And so I, I, I always tie it back to, you know, what's happening in their life in terms of function and movement and mobility and what was the context of what it is you were doing, right? Doing something in the clinic with me is different than doing something at home. And so I always kind of start there. I had a patient, this was a little while ago, another therapist saw her, she had this weird flank pain and the other therapist had come up with kind of this little like home exercise movement routine that the patient was really responsive to. And even during our session, she literally, like we'd be, and I tell people like, if you want to get up and do, I don't don't care, sit, stand, lay down, be on your head, roll around. I don't, I don't care. I'll (laughs) follow you. Right. I don't, whatever. Don't feel obligated to sit here. Right. Ramrod straight and uncomfortable. I got lots of pillow, whatever. Anyway, unprompted, probably about three times in the 45 minutes, she'd get up and do this, this like little, you know, few minute routine. And she's like, that's what this other therapist taught me. And it really, it helps bring it down when it starts to spike. (laughs) And I'm like, that's great. I'm really, that's amazing that you have found this thing that's so effective. The other observation I had is that she kept checking her phone. Obsessively, (laughs) obsessively checking her citizen app. And so I asked her, I was like, tell me about that. And she's like, well, I'm, you know, going over here later. And so, you know, I just want to make sure like nothing's happening over there. Right. Because I work in areas that have a lot more violence. So, but typically patients aren't constantly checking their phone to see like what a citizen app have to say. And in talking with her about that, we, she said, well, I used to do it on Facebook. Right. I used to, whenever I was going to go to some other neighborhood, I'd always look on Facebook to see what was happening, you know, check the people who live over that way. What's something going on over there? And so we kept winding it back. So this woman was in her, I think, 40s. And when she was in junior high, she was jumped by a group of kids and beat up. And it was pretty traumatic. And the assailants were arrested and she testified against them and this whole thing. And she told me then that ever since then, she had literally never gone anywhere without another person with her. And that it was only once, you know, as we were sort of like, un, you know, peeling the layers of this onion, she was like connecting these dots. Like after that, I never went anywhere with anyone else. When Facebook kind of came around, I kept, I would like check neighborhoods. Here we are, you know, 25 years after this incident and her system is still worried that she is going to get jumped when she goes wherever she's going to go. And she's like sitting there as like, I'm like watching the wheels turn in her head. Right. And it was because I just observed this sort of weird, obsessive behavior and was like, what? What's happening here, friend? What's you keep you keep checking it? Everything okay? Oh my gosh! They're not always that dramatically linked, but I want I want to know, right? If you if someone keeps bringing something up, uh, that's like a hey, Deborah, tune into this. There's some relevance here. Had you not been just paying attention, you would have been trying to figure out this weird flank pain. Sending her down a whole rabbit hole of oh I don't know appendicitis kidney stone I mean oh, whatever she had it could had every be you know like, multiple times yeah, over which yeah. was clearly off the mark okay so I'm gonna hold up something please tell me you've read this book you know it's funny every time I try to read it I'm like oh I don't have the patience but I know it oh. I know it I know it I do know it you need to read that Deborah 
Well, I mean, I know plenty about I've like read it and then I like put it down and then I read it and then I read more people's reviews about it. And then my friends who have read it do, you know, podcast things about it. So, <laughs> so, so you've absorbed it by osmosis. I've absorbed yeah. it by osmosis. And so for, for, for the listeners, I held up a copy of The Body Keeps the Score. And it's, yeah, it's, it's an I, amazing book. I think for, I think there's absolutely, especially like that patient I just kind of gave that example of. Her system clearly remembered that trauma, but that is yeah. not every patient. Every patient that comes to no, me no, no, doesn't no. always have trauma and not everybody's system harkens back to that. But kind of what I was saying before that, you know, related to sensory processing is prior pain experience shapes pain perception, right? And if you have a system that has nothing but experiences of pain related to a certain thing or action, the system has no reasonable expectation that that thing is going to magically not be painful when they do it right this is that defies learning of course it's going to hurt it hurt the last 10 times i tried it right (laughs) Mm -hmm. like obviously your body's not dumb my body's not dumb i already know how this is gonna go deborah no i'm not doing that exercise again (laughs) eight other therapists made me do it oh this will be funny that piece that had eight therapists so she was spanish speaking and our interpreter was with us Erica, I love her. Um, <laughs> and so I, I will tell you, clinicians I work with, like, still sometimes be like, Deb, remember that time? So we're <laughs> standing there, and literally her first words to me are, you know, I've been here. I've already done it all. I Like, you know, what you got for me, lady? This is with my <laughs> interpreter. This is the Erica. And I said, yeah, I'm not going to do anything you did before that didn't work. And so she's like, um, so you got nothing. I was like, I, I want you to laugh three times. That's what I said to her. I go, can you laugh three times? And Erica interprets. Erica has done a lot of pain sessions with me. So she is all in. And Erica was a medical assistant before becoming an interpreter. So she also has some like additional kind of medical yeah. knowledge. Anyway, so Erica <laughs> you know, repeated laugh three times. And the patient, you know, looks at Erica, looks at me, looks at, like, did you interpret that right? Looks at Erica, (laughs) right? Like, give them a little laugh. And I was like, no, seriously, I want you to laugh three times. And Erica interprets it again, just looking at me. And then I go, ha, 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 right? Like, totally acting ridiculous, made a fool of myself. Like, I don't care. People already think I'm a little kooky. Like, what's a little random, spontaneous burst of laughter? Right? Erica starts laughing, right? She's interpreting my laugh. <laughs> and the patient, right? And Erica's like, she's like all in. She's all in. She was great. And so then the patient's like, okay, weirdo. And so then she kind of starts laughing. But what the therapists remember, there's quite, there's several that, I, this was years ago. There's several that sometimes I'll remember it and they'll be like, that was the greatest moment. Because they all started laughing. Right. The therapist thought mm-hmm. we're six feet yeah. away in the parallel bars. The therapist thought we're on the bike. The th- <laughs> right. The people that were like, you know, overhearing this interaction. And I'm just like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> right. Everyone literally started laughing. And then the patient's like, well, I'm laughing, you know, because you're laughing and you <laughs> look you ridiculous. And I'm like, I, I do not care if that's what made you laugh. Why you're laughing. Yep. You are now laughing. And I told you I was not going to do anything that didn't work for you before that you did not like so we're starting with laughter friend and uh yeah. the next session she's like yeah i chuckled all the way home because i was like laughing at you and the whole situation and i was like wonderful i oh. gave right that your dose that day i dosed myself we need to consider our social communication as as very much a piece of that intervention sometimes the intervention and so i dosed myself that day and she came back nice. and she's like i did it i looked in the mirror and started laughing and you know my my contrived fake laughter turned into real laughter because it was absurd i was like superb keep doing that <laughs> <laughs> Love excellent it. she was a fun one one of the things you know she's she's too debilitated to I asked her, you know, what do you like really miss doing? You know, what is something that you're like used to really love to do? And she said, play volleyball. And she's too debilitated at this point to play volleyball. But, you know, we certainly did balloon taps. 
we certainly took beach balls, right? We kind of did some made up simulated volleyball stuff. Yep. You know, I was like, and then I like going through Google images because I uh, just one of my contrived strategies I do. And so this was really funny. We were looking at Google images of people playing volleyball. And what she was really gravitating to were like the people that had those like really intense expressions, like diving for the ball. Like <laughs> every picture, she's like, I like that one. I like it. And I take them all and I copy, put them in like a Word document. And then I print them out for her in color. And like watching her look at these pictures, she's like, oh, yeah, they're like, oh, like. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I was like, listen. How do you feel after looking at these pictures? And she's like, I really like them. I was like, good. And she's like, <laughs> she's like, and and a little bit relaxed. I was like, excellent. Feel free to look at them anytime. Here they are in color yeah. for you. <laughs> Here's your home exercise program. Look at these pictures. Yes, and laugh in the mirror. I mean, yep. I love it. And something that's funny is that this was several years ago. And so she's done occupational therapy a couple more times since then. And our interpreter sees her up in pain clinic. And anytime the patient comes in, Erica, the interpreter, is like, oh, Deborah, I saw Miss So-and-so. And something that you know, I believe we underutilize our interpreters. Erica is a case in point. She's unequivocally part of the medical team. But she offers mm -hmm. so much more insight than a lot of us, right? She's a cultural broker. Right. She sure. this isn't just about language interpretation. It's just so much broader than that. She's phenomenal. Anyway, her observation about the patient is that every time she interpreted for her, which was across disciplines, right, in appointments, okay. that she was just always really not angry, but kind of just what I don't remember what word she used. Not happy. She was not happy, right? She was hurting. She was miserable. Mm -hmm upset whatever and that ever since my round of care with her she's just like a new woman <laughs> she's so much more easygoing about stuff she's happier about stuff not like happy happy not like toxic positivity happy but her whole demeanor has relaxed and it's just really mm -hmm. interesting to kind of get that feedback from from the interpreter my adore if that's not changing patients lives i don't know what is I mean, she still hurts. She still comes to therapy, but she always smiles and waves at me. And it's been years, right? And she still laughs thinking about that, mm -hmm. right? There. I mean, again, I haven't worked with her one-on-one -on -one in a long time, but every once in a while, you know, I'll see her across the gym and I'll wave and I'll start pretend laughing and she'll start cracking up, <laughs> right? And it was you great. A, you made a core memory with her. That's I made did. a core memory. It was so different, right? She had no prior expectation of what I this was possibly going to achieve, <laughs> <laughs> right? It was great. But that kind of gets me to that social communication model of pain. I will look at it. The last blog, it took, I don't know why, it should not have taken me this long to write this hey, last blog. Speaking of, what's uh, where can our listeners find your blog? Oh, deverjoy.com. Look at Deverjoy. that. Deverjoy.com. Yeah. The last blog was about kind of saying adieu to the biopsychosocial model. Not because I don't believe that pain is those things, but that it's more than that. And that I think the emphasis on teaching biopsychosocial has not achieved what we had hoped it would achieve. I don't think it helps guide clinicians enough. And I think we can do better. And so what I like about the social communication of pain, model of pain, is that clearly within it is biopsychosocial. Right? The in-person's entire life and every experience and um, injuries and family interactions and societal interactions, culture, religion, everything brings them to the point in time with you. And then they experience something that leads to an experience of pain, all informed by everything I just mentioned. And they then express that. Right? They socially communicate that pain or that suffering. And that social communication, the expression of pain, isn't just for themselves. 
it's for an other, right? And when they're with me, it's for me, right? When they're with family, it's for family. When they're with a doctor, it's for the doctor. And it's worth considering the stakes of that relationship, right? It's worth considering the power differential in that relationship. And it's worth considering that our social communicative response to them feeds into the pain experience and will adjust their pain expression. For good or bad. For good or bad. And something I said recently on Twitter was that where I think biopsychosocial has failed and that the social communication model succeeds is the acknowledgement that we are in the scene with them. Mm. Yeah. Put some onus on the clinician. Right. We are not looking at them under a microscope, right? In the in the blog, I think I kind of reference reference like a you know butterfly in a bell jar. That's not that's not how this works. Pain expression is for another so that that other person can provide caregiving. Yeah. Right? And thinking about pain and pain experience and pain expression in those terms, I think helps. When I explain it to clinicians who are kind of struggling with with a case, they're like, well, that kind of changes things in my head. Right? (laughs) I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to have all the answers. And frankly, if someone's been going through this for 10 years, I think it's really silly for any of us to think like, oh, I know what this is. I'm going to cure you, right? Yeah, here's my magic wand. Here's Right, like that's not, they're not going to believe you. That's not realistic. What I can say is, I see you're really suffering, right? I see you're in a lot of pain. I see that you're working really hard to try to feel better. Right. I see that you're really trying to like be present for, you know, your family, your friends, your community, your, your church, your work, you know, whatever it is. And just giving them that social communication and response, because that's really what the caregiving is. That's what their social, social communication is, is communicating is that they need acknowledgement of that. Right. Because I want to dial down their systems, you know, kind of vibrating way up here. I want them to know that they are safe in my care, that I believe them. And this isn't just like, I believe you, but maybe it's all in your head. This isn't that at all. (laughs) Let me tell you, that happens um, a lot. But I think it's such a valuable thing. Imagine if we've taught this to students. Oh my gosh. Right? You're in the scene with them, and that pain expression is a call for caregiving. It's a call for, you know, like I read a doctor's note not long ago where he, it was just so very clear that he thought the patient was full of it because the patient was sitting in the room quietly and the doctor walked in, and then the patient became very animated. And I'm sitting there going, well, should he be in the room talking to himself? Like, (laughs) this is about social communication and you're high stakes right you're the gatekeeper of all the treatment yep you better believe that communication is you know there's just a lot more gravity to the physician in that example understanding believing and acknowledging Right. And as a patient, of course, you're going to be like extra, right? You are desperate for them to receive and understand and hear you. You want to make sure they know. You want to make sure they know. And this is all like, this isn't subconscious. I mean, maybe sometimes it is. I mean, I'll have patients who will say, I really hope they find something wrong with me because then it'll make me feel not crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have that all the time. Oh, yeah. Which well, I, I think is we've a all seen that. terrible yeah. social failure, right? We have failed. We have failed if if the takeaway is that, man, I, I really hope some, something horrible is found. Like, no, I don't, what? No, I don't, I don't want to find anything terrible. We're going to work, we're going to yeah. work this out. 
this is we got right we got lots of directions we can go in but i have a coloring book i got it i got paint i got coloring book (laughs) i also have adult coloring books (laughs) Like adult, adult. Now, when you say that, when you say it that way, like actual, that makes me like think a different adult, thing that adult, like you know, R rated. Like, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. It is what it is. What I think you're saying. Gotcha. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. I need that hey. in our in our office. Hey. I have <laughs> no. I have mail. I have mail. Pelvic parts. We're, mandalas. We're 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 humans. We you know. Yeah, that's as the that's OTs that I work with do. say, sex is an ADL. You sex know? is an ADL, and also if they find that stuff amusing, funny, entertaining, interesting, then I want to hone in on what they find salient. That's part of my process that I'm working on a CE course for, is that when you do a strategy and you ask them how it went, I first start with, did you like it? Did you not like it? You don't owe me like, oh, I really loved it, Denver. That was amazing. Like, yeah, you don't, you don't yeah. owe me that. But I definitely want to know what did you like about it? What stood out to you? Right? And I want to amplify those things. How can I pull out those parts and expand them? Circling back to a couple things that you said, because I've noticed now that you've said this a couple times in our call tonight, Deborah. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important. Oh, well done. (laughs) Use your own words there. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Talking about. You, I think you used the uh, shoot. Now it's slipping away from me. Uh, informed exploration was that the term that you used? Oh, I um, like experiments. Something like that. Something, Something about like lines. everything is an experiment. We learn so, from it either way. But in the in the in the sense of when a clinician is treating a patient, and you're just trying to find what works and what doesn't work in kind of along those lines, like, did you like it or not? I think a lot of clinicians have a hard time letting go of their ego. Oh, sure. To say <laughs> that, hey, here, here's here's my intervention. It's the best intervention because it's mine. Yeah. And and if the patient's like, eh, no, that I think it's, it certainly took me quite a long time to be able to, to, to step back and be like, all right, you know, that's swing and a miss. I, I, I I shot my shot and I missed. Okay, so mm-hmm. what? Like, I, what do you want to try? What do you want? What can, do you, with the patient, you, want to try? Can you put that through the social communication model of pain, Siv? Oh, geez. No, I think it's a perfect opportunity. I will try to explore. I have your blog post right here on my other screen. That you, as the patient, mm-hmm. Devra, yes. you as my patient, yes. are expressing your pain to me. Mm-hmm. The purpose of it is to get a response from me to provide what you need. I want I want you to feel driven to elicit care. Yeah. I want you to feel okay. compelled to care for me when I need yep. care. Okay. I mean, it's, it's almost just as, as simple as like parenting. Yes. The baby cries because yes. it wants something. It's a social right? communication of need. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. So I will say, Devra, I, I see that you are in pain. <laughs> yes. Okay. And I'll even use some of my the the the, the de-escalation techniques that they teach us at work when we have violent patients. I, I see I'm that you're punching a wall. I'm now a violent patient. Wow. Well, okay. Hey, things are really I'm escalating gonna put it, here. I'm going to put it in the framework of my clinic here. I see you're punching the putting your fist through the drywall. Are you upset? <laughs> that would make me more upset. I see that. I, I see that say, you're upset, Deborah. That would Deborah. make me want to punch you in. I know. The wall. No, let me let me. Let me go through the script here. So I see that you're upset. What What is it that's got you upset, Deborah? Okay, so what if I were the patient and I wanted to make sure <laughs> yep. that this caregiver yep. felt driven to continue to provide care for me? Yep. What might I say about a home exercise plan that I didn't like? Okay, so maybe... Let's say in this in this example, mm-hmm. if you want this caregiving relationship to continue, mm-hmm. you might tell me it was great. I feel better. Right. Okay. What if that's not but, true? What if it's not true? Yeah. yeah. So so how as the clinician, what if if a patient does tell me that? Says, Yeah, it was great, I feel better. How do I know 
that they perhaps are not telling me the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Because when you ask them how often they did it and they tell you only once or twice, you can look at them and say, <laughs> it's okay if you didn't like it. You don't yeah. owe me compliance. Yeah. If that's you, big, oh man, if that's you a big... didn't like, I'm in the scene with them, right? Their yep. social communication of, they were great. They really helped. Thank you. That's great. I haven't seen you in a week. Um, did you do them every day, every other day, three times a day? Oh, I think I I did it like twice. I did it the day I got home, and I haven't seen right. It since. And it, and sometimes it's like you know I really wanted to do them because I really like them, and I just my life got really busy, and not like a let's make us fit better, right? And sometimes it's a you don't need to tell me what you think I want to hear you it is okay if you didn't like them that's valuable for me to know so that we can move on to the next thing and not waste our time on something that you're just not into even if it's a really effective treatment like if you know whatever the home exercise whatever it is even if it's really effective if the person doesn't like it that's okay and i can pivot picture that movie poster She's just not into your home exercise. (laughs) I think you are on to something and there needs to be a shirt or a mug. (laughs) All right. I'll talk to somebody about that. No, that's a great idea. But thinking about it from the social communication, right? And think about as the patient having a practitioner say, it is okay if you didn't like what I offered you. There's a million other things we can explore, right? That's me thinking about being in the scene with them. That's me understanding that their pain expression, their call for care is going to be modified by whatever our interactions are and all of the other contexts that are swirling around us, right? We are not in a vacuum. I'm imagining being in my doctor's office and having that conversation. I just can't. I can't, I can't make that mental picture happen. I cannot imagine it. Right. Imagine saying, I really don't like this treatment you're offering. Yeah. And I say that <laughs> as a straight white male in America. And if I can't make that mental leap, yeah, I can't imagine what anyone else thinks. Oh, gosh. Know, People are like, really, t- I have to repeat it. I have to say it more than once. So really, I have to give them solid assurance. It is totally okay if you don't like these exercises. No, no, no. I really like them. They're great. Yeah, you don't. Don't you don't. Not necessary. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> like seriously, there's millions of exercises, right? There's so many things I could do. If you, I'm gonna start putting that onto all the home exercise programs I print out as a big disclaimer. You do not have to like this. Right. It's okay if you don't. Which doesn't mean you need to like suffer through them. But truly, if you're like these are so miserable and I just can't bear to do them then they're a mess and that's okay do you ever get some resistance to that from people because sometimes i will will run into someone who is like why can't you just give me three things i don't care if they hurt if they fix me i'll do it and that i want that to get but like they're frustrated with the fact that it's exercise is not just a pill that you can take and it'll fix them yeah well i think that our medical system is very much you know if it's broken fix it right if my, mm-hmm. cut it out of my body <laughs> Give me a pill. So I think it's really, you know, kind of based on what we talked about, the social communication model and all the, you know, everything that leads up to this moment in time and prior experience shaping perception and expectation, nothing in their prior world would ever make them think otherwise. Mm-hmm. Right. Our system has taught them that that's what happens. Right. So. Sometimes with those individuals, you know, we'll kind of, you know, I'm going to make up some patient avatar in my head. Sometimes it's you've had pain for a very long time. It's going to take us a little bit of time to unwind it. Because some of this is about mismatched expectations. I know it's going to take time. They're frustrated. They're in pain. They're tired of it. They want it to be over. And 
I can't like, those are all very normal expected things to feel like it'd be weird if you didn't feel those things. Like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But sometimes just sort of being able to take a step and say, you have, you have been in this state of feeling however your body's been feeling system has been feeling for five, six, 10, 15, 20 years, right? This is going to take us a minute to figure out for you and to unwind. And it's going to kind of be layers. You're, you're actually, that kind of reminds me of something I want to talk about next. And, you know, sometimes even just giving voice to it, you're frustrated and I can see that, right? I can understand why you're frustrated. I would be frustrated too, right? This is a really normal, natural feeling. Like, I, I hear you. And I am sorry that there's not a faster, quicker answer to resolve this. I truly wish there was. But what I commit to you, what I promise you, is that we are going to work through this. We are going to learn different things as we explore different options that seem logical and plausible. And that will tell us what our next steps are, right? Each each step of the way will inform how we build on it and how we grow and what path we take. But yeah, patients have been through a lot of crap by the time they've gotten to us, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> mm -hmm. They really have. And sometimes you're just like, I'm so sorry you have been through all that. Yeah. That That is not fair. Oh, but that, that statement in and of itself yeah. makes such a difference. The, yeah. the acknowledgement having someone recognize yeah. it yes the, the acknowledgement that wow you have been through the ringer and yeah that's got to be so hard that acknowledgement man you have probably just you just earned their affection and trust with those words right there anything more than anything you could have done you know intervention wise Sometimes I have taken it a step further because something that can come up with people, I mean, it can come up with anybody about anything, but something that you might hear more frequently with individuals with persistent pain mm -hmm. in, are themes of injustice mm -hmm. in their narrative. Mm -hmm. um, if it was a car accident or a work-related injury, they, you know, maybe felt incredibly wronged by the employer, the other driver, mm -hmm. the healthcare system that took care of them right after, right? If there is, I wouldn't be this way if that thing, that person, that whatever didn't, you know, hadn't happened, had I had my care been different, had, and there's research on it. And it's really helpful as a practitioner I think sometimes we have this idea that you need to like constantly defend any other care they've ever gotten. <laughs> yep. And I I can acknowledge their injustice without having any commentary on the care. And I don't think people know how to do that. I can say to the person, I am so sorry you experienced that injustice. I can just I don't yeah. I don't have to make it comment. Leave right? it at that. I am so sorry you don't feel like you got the care you deserved. I can I can give them that and it has and I mean there are times that people have been really like they told me my abdominal pain was all in my head I didn't go back for any you know they so shamed me that I didn't go back for two years turned out I had raging endometriosis right like that that is like so yeah. common yeah, yeah. it's really mm -hmm. sad right it, and so uh, yeah and so I really have to stay there that is really messed up. That shouldn't have happened. Yeah, that is I'm bad. Sorry, right. So there are times that you can like really like, yep, that was wrong. That mm -hmm. shouldn't have happened. But there are times where someone just feels this deep injustice about whatever is happening. And my patient, my, the patients that like are coming to mind when I think about this, they say it every time I see them, every single session, it comes up. And every single session, without frustration, without judgment, I turn to them, I look them in the eye, and I say, I'm really sorry this happened. 
I'm really sorry you didn't get the care you feel you should have gotten. I'm really sorry this car accident happened. I'm really sorry, yeah. right? I'm not old. Like, it's not my thing to apologize for, but you know what I, I mean? Know. Just it's... acknowledging mm-hmm. the injustice. Yep. You can't gloss over it. You have to say so. Because everyone else has glossed over it. Everyone else has glossed over it. And and injustice runs very, very deep. And there is, if you're interested in it, there is um, some really, I think, insightful, helpful research that can kind of help give you some more awareness of it to feel a little more capable of how to respond to it when it comes up. Because it does, it will come up. And it's nice to feel like you know how to, you know, that social communication, dosing yourself, <laughs> mm-hmm. some recurrent themes. Hmm, sensing a pattern here. Um, God, there was something one of the two of you said that I was like, oh, I want to talk more about that. And now I'm trying to remember what it was. Catherine's a smart one, so it's probably something she said. I feel like it was related to something she was just saying. No, it was like, were you, uh, you were talking about a person being frustrated. Yeah. I was talking about somebody who wants you to just be able to give them three exercises. Oh yeah. Why can't you just fix me that way? Yeah. Oh yeah. We talked about that, but it rang something, rang a bell. I'll think of it. I'll think of it. But yeah, no, injustice themes I think are valuable to understand again, back to that dosing yourself and social communication. Oh, this is great. So I did, this would have been October of 2020. Pandemic year one. Mm-hmm. It's really hard for me to keep track. <laughs> um, I spoke at the San Diego Pain Summit and my topic was on shame and stigma Ooh. and clinical encounters in pain care. Oh, wow. And it was awesome. It was great. And one of my most favorite articles that kind of helped elucidate this social communication framework framing of pain was an article about did dinosaurs experience pain (laughs) (laughs) there's an actual article talking about dinosaurs and pain because fossil records show lots of injuries healed at various stages right and like Mm -hmm. some of these injuries are like um you would have been incapacitated so how did you survive oh dinosaur how did you survive for this level of healing of this injury that would have incapacitated you if not for others And when you Mm -hmm. look at like fossilized, it's really common when you look at like fossilized um, tracks that you can see gate asymmetries, Mm. right? There was like some dino Trendelenburg happening. (laughs) (laughs) That's so interesting. Trendelenburg Rex. There was some dino dino toe drag going on. They needed a dino AFO. Right? And so (laughs) it raises the question, how did... Our friend, the dinosaur, survived these injuries. And the answer is that it would have, this is this is kind of where some of these theories start to emerge, is that they would have required an other who provided care. And then we start talking about social group dynamics for survival. Mm-hmm. And man, think about animal distress calls. Hey, group. I'm injured. Something's wrong. Please come help me. And that that social communication would have been required for other members of their group to come and provide said care, right? Mm -hmm. Other predators, food, shelter, enough for healing to take place to the level that they could, you know, do their own dino physical therapy and mm-hmm. dino home exercise programs that they didn't like. Three three and sets of dino 10. All of that. Some dino aqua therapy, whatever, aquatic. And the idea is that it is predicated on the notion that once well, our dino friend would again be able to contribute to the group and whatever their function was within that group. Hmm. 
right? And man, if that just didn't send me down a rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, wow, that is, that is some stuff to think about, you know? And then it just really ties into patients, you know, being very concerned about our perceptions of them, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I want to be thought well of so that people feel driven to provide care for me, right? I want, I, I want my pain and my pain communication, my pain expression to elicit in another person their intrinsic desire to provide care. Yeah. Right. And that because if I can't elicit that within them and I can't get the care, then what's going to happen to the dino with a broken leg? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. They ain't going to make it. Right. And so it kind of just starts getting you thinking about the gravity of kind of these intrinsic communications within us. Right. This isn't just, oh, I'm hurting. This mm-hmm. is. I'm hurting, I need care, and what happens if I don't get that care, right? And part of what the shame and stigma um, conversation led to was how deeply we want to remain in good standing in the eyes of others. Mm-hmm. Because think about what excommunication means, Yeah. right? Think, right? It means... <laughs> In Dino World, it means you're done. <laughs> you're right. Your food. You're you're done. You're right. You're you're a tar pit. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's just just to be a little hyperbolic for you, <laughs> but it just those types of things are really they make me think. They make me wonder. They make me sit there and consider when my patient is talking to me and their communication maybe is louder, is more amplified, is rushed, is hurried, is exasperated, is, right? Mm-hmm. I hear in that their deep worry that they won't be provided care. Yeah. They're not right? They're not faking it. They're not malingering. They're not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had someone say to me, she was like kind of nervous laughing during our first appointment. And she's like, I'm so sorry. Like, I just know that whenever I start to tell people about all the things, I I feel embarrassed that that many things is going on with me and I feel too complicated. Like, and that is all just like ringing true as like, she's trying to frame what she's going through in a way that would be acceptable to me. Versus, she doesn't like, want to overwhelm you or scare you or turn you away. She yeah. wants to elicit in you on this deep, deep, deep level, right? The purpose of the communication is that within you, you feel this deep drive to provide care. So I I have two kids and especially with my first one, I would always be the first one to hear him cry, hands down. He'd, he'd be thinking about crying and I would hear it. <laughs> right. And if that, if one of my friends was like, Oh yeah. Phantom baby. I was like, what? I, I, yeah, it is <laughs> like Eddie hands down. We'd be like, no, he's not crying. And then sure enough, it's, you know, two seconds later, I was like, I told you, I'm like, how did you hear that? <laughs> um, or, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen people who like, if they hear a baby cry in a restaurant, they cannot sit still. Yeah. Ooh. They got to get up. They got to see, I'll take mm-hmm. your baby. Right. Oh, right. That is a deep, deep, deep drive. Mm-hmm. Right. To, to provide care. Right. And so, you know, it's a different levels and different levels of salience for our own personal group. Right. My family versus an other, you know, pod of dinos. <laughs> right. <laughs> But, you know, you know, the other thing I say, especially since we're kind of on this, like, communication of pain, and this is something I've said for years and years and years as a way to help clinicians who are clearly frustrated with their um, patients that they weren't finding success with, I would say something really softly. I'd be like, well, what do you do if someone can't hear you? 
And they'd be like, what? And I would say, what do you do if someone can't hear you? <laughs> right? If you feel like you're not being heard, the normal response is to repeat yourself and talk louder. Right? Mm -hmm. That's how communication works. And we fault people who are suffering for repeating themselves and talking louder. Yeah. We start thinking that they're seeking drugs. We think that they're malingering. We think all sorts of terrible things. Instead of thinking they're desperate to be heard. Yeah. You know, and the minute you start dosing yourself and acknowledging their pain and recognizing it, you're not going to help their system to come down at all. You know, and so when I read notes like patient was sitting quietly in a room and then doctor walked in and they started crying out in agony. I'm like, yeah, this is not helpful. Don't do that. Don't write that. Don't do that. <laughs> The patient was by themselves. Should they, should they be in there talking to themselves about their own pain? I mean, they're talking to themselves with their head. The note should read, Why do they need to talk out loud? patient was calm and comfortable until the doctor came in and made him worse. <laughs> Touche. Touche. Thank you for having me. I love talking about this stuff and helping clinicians feel more confident when they're working with people who hurt. Well, I really appreciate the invitation and you guys having me in being willing to talk about all this cool stuff. It is cool. Yeah, I mean, awesome. I got to talk about dinosaurs. So <laughs> dinosaurs and and related and, it relate it to like my my care as a PT. <laughs> Dr. Deborah Sheldon is a physical therapist in Chicago. You can find her on Twitter at DevraJoyPT or at DevraJoy.com. She likes coloring books and dinosaurs. Waves is a production of APTA Michigan. It is co-hosted by Dr. Katherine Klein and me, Andy Wicks. You can follow us on social media at APTAMIWaves or at www.aptami.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening and may all your documentation always be done on time.